BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It is Robbie Morgan, better known as Annie Phillips from Friday the 13th. Excuse the ponytails, but I am off to teach a tap class and had to put my hair in ponytails. Listen, Friday the 13th is my day. And I consider Friday the 13th my lucky day. So what I want to say is if you're out and about and you drive by some woods and you see a Jeep or something, whatever you do, don't go out there. Happy Friday the 13th from me. And um, talk to you soon. In a world where zombies, ghosts, serial killers, and vampires all exist, it's Nico, Brian, Mike, and Dustin. And they are all that stand between you and the films that could end the world. Welcome to the Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Podcast. Happy Friday the 13th, all of our Don't Go Out There fans. Really appreciate all support. We appreciate all of our listeners. Y'all are awesome. Uh, it's Friday the 13th, obviously, so we know we had to drop some some bonus content on you guys. Uh, but, but before we do that, let's shout out our website, don'tgooutthere.com. Uh, everything about our podcast is on the website. Uh, Brian's done a fantastic job with it. Uh, if you want to listen to all of our episodes and interviews, we've got all of those there. We've got a shit ton of Friday the 13th interviews on there, so definitely check those out. It's a lot easier to find them on the website. You know, we've gotten over 200 and some episodes now, so a lot easier to find them there. We also have our store. Uh, you know, we got some new t-shirts, some new merch, and Shan's Etsy page. All of our new tumblers are out. Definitely check those out. And we also have uh, our blog up if you want to check out any of our think pieces. Uh, you know, we all like to write and put our feelings out there. And the last thing I'm going to shout out before we get into tonight's episode is our Patreon. It's just called Blood Donors. We have a one-time donation. Uh, you know, if you want to want us to review one of your favorite movies, something like that, we have that option available. And we also have the traditional monthly reoccurring kind. Uh, we can't stress enough that we really appreciate all of our monthly donors. It helps take a big burden off of us. Um, none of that money goes into any of our pockets. It just goes directly back into the podcast. So we really appreciate y'all support. Uh, tonight we're reviewing 1980s Friday the 13th, the very first one that kicked it all off. Uh, I'll go first just with my general thoughts. Uh, I've already self-admitted that this is my least favorite of the franchise. I still don't think this movie is great by any means, but you know, after a rewatch, uh, I enjoyed it a little more. I still don't think it's great. I'll touch on all of the reasons why at the end when we give our ratings, but it kicked off, you know, one of it was the jump start to one of my favorite horror franchises. So I have to respect for what it's done, but I do have quite a bit of problems with it. And I don't think anybody would, I don't know, maybe some of the co-hosts think this movie is a good movie, but it's campy and cheesy as hell. It's fun. Some of. <laughs> it ain't me brother, but uh, no, I just no, think the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. I'm John snow over here, but it's all good. <laughs> but I just think I, I'm not a big fan of it, but I respect what it done. Uh, Brian, you want to go next? 
Yeah. Okay. So it's no secret if you've listened to the show over the years, I've kind of been like Nico, you know, I've not been shy about throwing shade at this movie. I've always ranked it in the bottom three of the franchise and I've never really given it much of a chance because all growing up, you know, I've been a Jason Voorhees fan. He's my favorite slasher, you know, again, not my favorite franchise, but my favorite horror character. Um, So I never really cared for this movie. Um, I've maybe watched it one full time, I think. And that was at least, at least 25 years ago. Um, now, it's ingrained in pop, enough in pop culture. Like, I know the basics. I know the Kevin Bacon kill. I know who the killer is, that kind of thing. But um, I said all that to say, today, I'm here to apologize. I grew up. You know, after this rewatch, I like this movie. Um, and, you know, and this was actually a really cool experience for me personally, because it was almost like watching it for the first time, because it had been so long, and I literally remembered like maybe 1% of the movie. Obviously, I knew the killer, but I I didn't remember a single aspect of anything else. Uh, Now, look, the damn thing is too long. (laughs) You know, there's a ton of other issues, uh, but there really is this like atmosphere and this nostalgia that, you know, going back 40 plus years to the one that started it all for this franchise is really something that I I really, I guess I ingested this go around. Uh, And look, like I said, this movie has been around for 40 plus years. There's so many retrospectives and Crystal Lake memories and, uh, you know, another Friday documentaries and just, you know, there's just so many on this movie. It's kind of daunting one to do, in my opinion. So so you may have heard some of this stuff we'll say a million times, but bear with us. You know, given a new, fresh perspective on something like this is almost an impossible task, truthfully. Um, I'm going to try to assume most people listening to this pod know the basic stuff and you know, I, I'm I'm going to probably just do a lot of nitpicking and telling some facts that I personally didn't know. So I'm sorry that was long, but I mostly just wanted to admit I had changed my mind regarding this movie. And uh, happy Friday the 13th. Uh, yeah. So, OK. Um, as many of you know, that if you've been longtime fans of the show way back when when we ranked these movies, I had this movie low as well. Uh, now, I, I definitely didn't dislike it as much as Brian and Nico. I had it somewhere <laughs> in the mid range. And by the way, I think that's pretty common amongst Friday the 13th fans where maybe they don't hate it. Like, like Nico and a few others I know do, but they have it, you know, somewhere in in the middle of the pack, they kind of appreciate what it's done. Um, and you you know, what it it represented for the horror genre and slashers as a subgenre of horror. Um, I'm here to say this movie continues to move up my rankings. Now is this movie, Great. No. Is this movie even what I would consider a classic? Um, It's a cult classic, if you want to go that far, because it spawned a 12 or, excuse me, 11 movie franchise after it. So, you know, out of this weird, shitty soil came this big, long beanstalk. You know what I mean? And so there's a lot of good in this movie. Is Is it objectively a quote unquote good film? Not really, <laughs> but that does not mean that I don't enjoy it for what it is. It's hokey, it's campy, it's 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 just fun in a lot of places. This movie drags some, no doubt about that. Um, but I love the things that this movie gets right. The, I, I think the score and the music is perfect. Uh, the effects from Tom Savini are fantastic for its time, uh, maybe even ahead of its time. And I think as far as setting a template for just these basic characters are only on screen to get killed. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. And 
I think the killer reveal, which if you're listening to the show, you probably know by now, but I think the killer reveal is really good. I like it. And I know there's a lot of Friday the 13th fans, including my brother Nika, who I love to death. They, they consider Jason King. And I understand that. And he's intimidating and hulking and he's a much better killer for a franchise. But to me, I would really have loved this franchise in an alternate universe. I like Jason. So I I, I I got nothing against Jason Voorhees. But there's a part of me that would have loved to see a follow-up to this story had Pamela Voorhees not succumbed by the end of the movie. Or a prequel to this movie. Maybe giving the events of everything that went down that led to this movie. I just would love to see that character explored more. And there's a part of me that thinks she's scarier in a way than a hulking guy running after you with a machete. But again, this is all kind of, like Brian said, a little bit of, you know, rehashing stuff that's already been done. We know, I think we all feel the same about Sean Cunningham on this show as far as current day. But you go back in time, I got to give him credit for laying groundwork and and creating something that stood the test of time, whether you love it, whether you hate it. It's it's in the pop culture zeitgeist for a reason. And I'm excited we finally get to cover it. And, and I, I tend to like it just a little bit more each time I watch it. This movie is a classic. Um, first of all, when we did the rankings episode, that was one of the very first episodes that I was a part of with this podcast. It was a lot of fun. That, wasn't that my that first? That was the first one. That was yeah, my that first was. episode. Yeah, yeah. You guys asked me if I wanted oh, to come I thought on. I did the interview first with Ken. Uh, no, or, that came after. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, you got, I remember you guys asking me to come on because you know that I love this franchise. Uh, it's top three horror franchise for me. Depending on the day, it might be one. Um, I When we did our rankings episode, I ranked this one second. And I believe, now it's been a long time, and you know I've, it's, I've been very open about my CTE kicking my ass a lot. But <laughs> if my memory serves me correctly, I believe that I said that I think this is the best movie in the franchise, but it's not my favorite in the franchise. I think I said that. Um, and I stand by that. I, I think that this movie is a blatant ripoff of a lot of movies that came before it. Right. But I think that it gets so many things right, with the exception of Ned, that I, I think it's forgivable and not just forgivable, but commendable. I think that this movie's got some great visual effects I think that the twist is great. And then I mentioned when we did the rankings episode also, I said that uh, I watched this movie a couple years ago with a girl who had never seen any of the movies. Like we did an entire Friday the 13th uh, marathon. We watched them all. And the shock and the look on her face when you find out that Jason's not the killer in this first one, she was blown away because she, all she knew about the franchise was Jason. Like Jason's iconic. If you've never seen a movie, you know about Jason Voorhees, you know about the hockey mask and machete. So I think that when you take that for what it is, like that's a really cool experience to watch this movie. If you've never seen it um, and see that twist because it's such a natural organic. Like, oh my God. And then uh, also I think that had movies two through 12 or I think there's 12 uh, not existed. Then this movie would be held in even higher regard because like Nico, I guarantee you, you didn't see this one first, right? In the franchise. So 
no six was my first one. yeah and so by then like you, you know you jason oh my god he's awesome so you go back and watch one it is disappointing i can i can i can completely get that but uh you know for what it is though i think this movie is well it's undeniably a huge success not just uh with this one movie's box office which michael get into at the end of the show but obviously spawning this many sequels and all of them having theatrical releases is impressive because usually when we get to later in the franchise, they're like, okay, let's stop putting this shit out there. Let's just go direct to VHS or whatever the case may be, or, you know, TV movies, whatever. I think that this movie uh, is one of the goats in, in the, in the, uh, in the genre. You know, just kind of going back to what you said about your girlfriend and, and her uh, being no, shocked. No, 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 not my girlfriend. Not my girlfriend. Okay, my, my bad. I, I wasn't sure where to go with it, so I just went with girlfriend. I'm sorry. So a, a, the girl, the girl, the girl female of that the you, moment, the, a girl of the moment, not a girl of the night, a girl of the moment uh, that uh, you threw me off here. Oh, that, <laughs> that you watched that you watched this for, you know, thinking that Jason was the killer. You know, that is, I mean, shit. That's in the zeitgeist even still today, and the reason why that they even put that in. Scream, the Scream opening sequence. I mean, because everybody thinks of Jason when they think of Friday the 13th. Yep. And we've definitely hit our zeitgeist quota for the year. We've said it I no, think, three times. I'm going to continue to use the term pop culture zeitgeist until the wheels fall off, brother. That's fine. But I'm saying this is the first three times that I think I've heard that word on this show. And, and it's been three times within the first 15 minutes. So impressive. Yeah, you're well, right. Well, in his defense, Mike has been the one that has used the zeitgeist in the past. Fuck it. I'm going with zeitgeist. Let's Just do position? it. I'm drinking these <laughs> shitty white claws. I got nothing better to do. Let's do this. <laughs> Trend. <laughs> All right. Uh, any more opening thoughts before you jump into scene by scene? Uh, really quick, I, I I didn't shout it out in my open. Really quick, I think Betsy Palmer, fantastic as Pamela Voorhees. Just want to throw that out there. She adds so much. You can tell she's a well-trained actor. I think her character work in this movie makes this movie. This movie is a significantly worse film without the few minutes that she's on screen. Like I, I just don't think anyone else that at that time could have pulled off the way that her her eyes, her facial expressions, just really good stuff. Them chompers. Palmer. Yeah, I'll say, you know, Dead Meat made the joke that whoever her dentist is, she's not paying him enough or her enough, and he's absolutely right. She's got some teeth. Oh, I should have I should have watched the kill count. Shout out to Dead Meat. But that is funny that, like, I, that was one of the first things you noticed about her, so that's funny he made that joke too. Yeah, that that's probably part of the problem of this being so damn HD now that you're you're gonna you're seeing all these like mistakes that right. Were, this was never I, meant for you to see that. I've got head. one. So, so it's funny you say that, Brian. And this is my last thing: is sometimes I think this movie is more fun to watch knowing all that shit, knowing yeah. how it's all made, knowing how the sausage is cooked. Like I just think that there's a lot of fun in a rewatch when you go back and you're like. Ah, I probably in 1979, no one would have caught that shit. But since I'm here in 2022, this looks like ass or this looks really good. Wow. For for 19, you know, 79, this looks really fucking good. So I I love that about this movie. Every time I rewatch it, it kind of feels like a time capsule moment. And uh, I think that makes it more fun than it would have been if I had just sat and watched some shitty slasher. I didn't know anything about. Well, if you said this looked like ass during the uh, Kevin Bacon scene, uh, the sex scene, it, it was ass, Mike. It was. <laughs> well, there's definitely an ass in that scene, but you know, there you go. Yeah, well, speaking of that's that's one that's what I was talking about. Like when we get to that scene, like that's one of those things that you were talking about how 
HD just did not do this movie justice because you can clearly see the difference in tones and skin color, quote unquote yeah. skin color from his yeah. face and the uh, his torso. All right, let's jump into the scene by scene. The film starts with a moonlit sky at Camp Crystal Lake, 1958. We see counselors singing around a fire, and we see a POV shot walking through the cabins, looking at campers sleeping. Barry and Claudette walk away together when the song's over <laughs> and go to make coitus. They get to the top of a cabin and lay a blanket down and begin to kiss. The POV shot walks up the stairs towards the counselors now. The two panic when they hear a noise and see the person. Barry is stabbed in the stomach area, and Claudette tries to get away but is trapped as a great score plays. She's killed in a freeze frame zoom up on her face and now title card. Friday the 13th and opening credits roll. Friday the 13th, the present. We meet Annie who is hiking in the town and she meets a doggo at the gas station. She's trying to get directions from the dog playfully to Camp Crystal Lake. She's walking through town some more and gets to a diner. She asks the crowd how far is it from Camp Crystal Lake. They call it Camp Blood and say it's like 20 miles away. A truck driver offers to take her to like a stopping point and the truck driver flirts with her until Crazy Ralph ambushes her and says, you're going to Camp Blood, huh? You'll never come back, and it's got a death curse. Truck driver gets a little handsy as he pushes Annie into the truck. They drive off now, and she tells him she'll be uh, cooking for the campers. He says, did the boss tell you what happened out there? It gets quiet, then he tells her to quit. Quit now. Camp Crystal Lake is jinxed. He brings up a boy drowning in 57, two kids killed in 58, in all kind of unknown fires, and no one knows who started them. He says for her to quit again. Annie is dropped off at a cemetery, and she begins to walk again. We see another truck with three teens in it with some folksy music playing. Ned asks Marcy if there will be more sexy women at camp. The truck turns into the camp entrance, Camp Crystal Lake. We see Steve chopping wood, and he asks the three teens to help chop wood. He calls for Alice. He introduces all of them to each other. Alice shows them where they can all change. Steve helps Alice work on the gutters. He compliments her drawings. He asks her if she wants to leave and asks for her to give him another chance. He'll put her on the bus himself if she's not happy by Friday. He caresses her and thanks her and walks away. Alice is running through the woods and we see a POV shot watching her. She asks Bill if he needs any uh, paint, but he says all he needs is just thinner. The POV shot watches Alice again. Steve gives the counselors their instructions and takes off. Brenda is setting up targets for the archery range and Ned shoots an arrow and she asks if he's crazy. He says she's beautiful when she's angry. Annie is walking still and hitchhikes a ride from an unseen driver in a Jeep. She hops in the Jeep and they take off. The Jeep races past the Camp Crystal Lake entrance and Annie says we should stop so the driver drives even faster. Annie jumps out the Jeep herself when the driver won't stop. Annie runs into the woods hurt and is chased by the driver. She keeps falling over from her hurt leg and deeper and deeper into the woods. Annie is jump scared by the driver and she has her throat slit. All right, Brian, that's the opening I got. What did you think? All right, so first off, like Dustin touched on, it's no secret that Victor Miller had admitted numerous times in interviews that Sean Cunningham told him to straight up rip off what he considered the best of other horror movies, uh, mix it in with meatballs, Bill Murray's the goat, and this cold open is definitely one of the million things he pulled from 78's Halloween. Uh, but he also admits to inverting the psycho formula as well as copying the ending jump scare from Carrie. So there's a lot of quote unquote borrowing or what do they call it in the biz to not get sued inspiring <laughs> uh, 
uh, going on here in this one scene. And, and there's definitely more to it that, you know, I'll try to call out through this, you know, through this scene by scenes and the guys will as well, I'm sure. But, you know, now the sing along is a little cheesy, but one other cool thing is that you get to see campers actually at Cramp Crystal Lake. You know, that's something that never fucking happens in this series. Um, we brought it up, I believe in the part six review, don't go out there.com. And, you know, kids and campers, are only shown in part six other than this movie. Part two takes place at a separate camp that is near Camp Crystal Lake, you know, before the campers arrive, uh, while all the other sequels take place at like locations that range from either like close or far away from Camp Crystal Lake itself. Um, All right. So now let me go ahead and give some love to Harry Manfrediti's iconic score. uh, One, if not the best in horror cinema history, very recognizable, you know, and just to kind of get it out of the way, We've all had our rants on the toxic fandom. Mike and Nico's came recently with Scream and Halloween Kills. Mine came back in, oh shit, I think it was episode four. Whenever we did Friday the 13th part four, uh, that's where I overreacted. You know, I'm pretty sure that, you know, it, it's it's that one. But I won't rehash my feelings on it. Just go listen to episode four for my overreaction on toxic fandom. Just don't be a dickhead and correct someone with the key, 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 my, my, my shit. You're not as smart as you think you're being. I mean, actually. Well, actually, shout okay, out to friend I'll of the show. <laughs> shout out to the friend of the show, Robbie Morgan, who plays Annie. Um, I know some of the dialogue isn't the greatest here at the start, but this town, everything has been, you know, become so iconic. It's cool to see again. Um, I kind of hope to have Miss Morgan on the show soon, you know, as our first guest from this entry in the franchise. So stay tuned. That'd be um, sick, or- man. She was such a baby. <clears throat> Yeah, she was. You're right. Um, or go check it out on our interviews page at don'tgooutthere.com or don't, depending on if it happens and when you may or may not be listening to this. But, uh, you know, a few things and I'll get out of here. The truck driver, you know, Enos, 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 I don't know how you say his name. Anyway, rest in peace. He passed away on Monday the 13th in, in you know, the year 2000. But my guy Enos was was super perv. You know, even blankly copped a feel on Annie as she was getting into the truck. Um, gotta say Annie was kind of an unappreciative asshole as well. So Steve Christie is pervy as hell rubbing Alice's face the way he did in this opening. I'm not sure what that was supposed to imply or just kind of add to the red herring aspect that he serves, you know, before he's killed. Um, oh, that reminds me of another nitpick. Betsy Palmer actually tried to get Sean Cunningham to add her to this cafe scene, just waving or sitting there or something because she thought it was dumb that you literally don't see her at all until the reveal. And I agree 100% with Betsy here. Cunningham, I think I think that would have added a whole lot to it. And lastly, that cemetery, this exact shot from when Annie is getting out of the car is recreated as well for the 2020 fan film Voorhees. Um, so that's pretty cool. Love the shaky cam, first person, you know, POV shots for a lot of this. I know it was lifted from Halloween, but I really liked it, you know, the way it looked here. Last thing I'll say is, and I think I've said the last thing like three times already, but this is for real the last thing I'll say is a shout out to friend of the show, Tom Savini as well. Only 26 freaking years old when he did this. Um, the effects look great on Annie's kill. Maybe my favorite kill in the whole movie. You know, I love me a good throat slash and I freaking love how good it looks here, even in HD. Um, and in the uncut version, which if you're a Friday fan and you don't own the uncut version of any of them, you're doing yourself a disservice. But this blood coming out of the wound is actually shown longer before we fade to white in the scene. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. Oh, no, you're good. You know, it's funny. I almost forget every time I or b- before I watch this film every time 
just how much this opening scene rips off Halloween. And look, I know the Halloween guy, I get it. But they admitted what they did. So it's okay to say it doesn't mean it's not effective. The reason they ripped it off is because it was effective. This setting it in the past, you know, you know, black uh, title screen with, you know, Friday the 13th, 1958 or whatever, all that stuff. Ripped it straight from Halloween, the POV kill straight from Halloween, but it's still effective. Uh, you know, there's a reason that formula worked for so long. Uh, so I just think it's, it gets a chuckle out of me every time I'm like, man, this is literally out of Haddonfield. But anyway, um, I'm, I'm okay with this camp counselor stuff. Um, I think it kind of sets them up. Like Brian said, we get to see some campers at Camp Crystal Lake. And this is important. This this like this is the kind of teen we're gonna get. And I know this is set almost 20 years in the past, but we're gonna, you know, this is the kind kind of character we're gonna get a little more down to earth, a little more just regular people uh in this in this movie. So I don't mind that I like this this opening scene. I like the POV kills. I, I think it works really, really well. Some of the like, some of the acting is is a little meg, you know, the scream and everything else. But again, I think it works for the time. It's a little campy, and I think it's fun. Um, small rant here. This movie does what some of these early Friday the Thirteenth movies do, and it's this long ass opening credit scene set to the score. I love <laughs> the score, but it takes for ever to get through this motherfucker it's just a black screen with white letters and it annoys the piss out of me i fast forward every time i watch one of these early friday movies because it fucking bugs the shit out of me like get on with it already (laughs) you can list all these motherfuckers at the end i mean congratulations to victor miller and sean cunningham and all these other people but let's move on here it's very go ahead dustin well i think i think that was very intentional because you know, not only did they want to uh, borrow or be inspired by uh, like, Halloween, but I psycho. think it was, it was a very Hitchcock-esque thing to do. Yeah, not yes. just Psycho, and, but, you know, yes. a lot of Hitchcock movies, right. because of the time, that was the style back then. Let's show everyone who's involved with the movie right now. So, <laughs> Like, and you're not wrong. That's exactly why they did it. But I want to p- point out, I don't like it in the Hitchcock movies either. <laughs> um, so, okay, I won't rant on it forever, just... God, it's so boring. I, I just don't know why it's here. And, the, and and there's a couple other scenes in this movie where I'm like, all right, let's get on with it. Um, but it, but anyway, I like everything after that, though. You know, getting to the town, you know, we get to meet Ralph, uh, who, my man, I love his bucket hat. It's awesome. I don't think Ralph is a bad character. I've seen a lot of, like, slander at Ralph in the horror community. I don't think so. Uh, I think he's kind of a fun character. Very... Uh, just kind of charming in a weird way. You know, it's very memorable to say the least. And I like all this stuff with Annie and the Jeep. I think it works. I think they do a pretty good job of, of making it suspenseful, even within this like campy, not campy as in like, we're going camping, but just like this over the top kind of cheesy setting of making this scene suspenseful. Jeep speeds up, won't slow down. She jumps out of it. And then I love her kill. I'm just like Brian, as everyone knows, I love a good throat slash. And I think the throat slash here works really, really well. So I think as much as I had some negatives in this opening set of scenes, I do think it's very effective of making me want to see exactly where this movie goes. 
Yeah, so I think the open set of scenes is good. I like the uh, the early introduction, you know, the flashback where we get the retro uh, introduction to you know the basically the backstory of the entire franchise right here. Right, you get these camp counselors uh, sneaking off to do the do. Which, by the way, if there's one song that definitely turns me on, it's uh, "Kumbaya, My Lord, Hallelujah." It definitely gets me in the mood for sex too. That was weird, but um, I also Really like how when the, uh, you know, the killer is approaching them, I like the familiarity. Like, that's a nice, subtle touch where he's like, oh, hey, like he didn't feel threatened at all. He knew he was in trouble probably, but he's just like, oh, hey, uh, we weren't doing anything. And then, oh, you're dead. And then she's legit terrified. And then she's, I assume, dead. Um, So I think that that's great um, because it repeats itself later in the movie uh, when the same killer uh, approaches Steve and he's like, Oh, what are you doing out here? And then when he approaches Alice is like, uh, you know, Alice didn't feel immediately threatened. There's that familiarity and that comfort of, okay, I'm okay. But anyway, um, I agree with what you're saying. I get what you're saying about the, uh, the title card and everything, but it doesn't necessarily bother me. I, I chalk it up more so as, uh, you know, the, the sign of the times, uh, but I do love that iconic shot of the, just the logo coming towards the screen and then uh, the glass shatter. And I almost thought Stone Cold was going to be the killer in this movie when I first saw it. But um, I, I like the introduction of all these camp counselors. Uh, or I like the introduction that we get to uh, to Annie there. Like I said, what a babe. And it was it was kind of I like this the subtle comedic touches that they add like she's petting the dog she's like hey girl oops i mean boy like i don't know that's that's just like that innocent humor that's kind of funny um i agree enos is a creep what a pervert um but i i I said i texted you guys when i was doing my latest rewatch before we recorded tonight i was like you know ralph might be the goat of this franchise like i don't know there's something crazy something i love about a batshit crazy old man just preaching doomsday you know I, i love it But um, I think that, well, first of all, I know it was done intentionally to throw you off their tracks, but one of my nitpicks with the movie is how they try too hard to throw us off their tracks. And you can clearly tell that's not a woman. The killer is not a woman, like the actual killer, the the person that's standing in right there. That's a large frame. Uh, And but, you know, for what it is, I agree. Hats off to Tom Savini. Um, the uh, effects on that throat slit were awesome. Um, and you you mentioned the score, so you know Harry uh, Manfredi, Manfredini, that's it. I like how he only used the music when the killer was around. That was a great touch. Uh, my favorite moment of the movie where normal movies would uh, typically have a score or a sound effect or something is when uh. I think it's in the next set of scenes, but when Brenda's setting up the archery target, like right there, and then the air, uh, nipshit, dipshit, uh, Ned fires the arrow into the target there. Normal movies, that would be a perfect opportunity for a loud ass jump scare, like a cymbal clashing or a, a horn blowing, and it, it's meant to jump. I like that they didn't do that because it makes the music mean even more, the score mean even more. Because when the when you hear it, you're like, oh shit, someone's about to die. So. Um, overall, I think it's a very good set of scenes. Just that that that's my biggest nitpick is that knowing how the movie turns out, man, that's not a woman body. 
unless it's China. <laughs> so many wrestling reference, references. You're welcome. Uh, the counselors are all on the dock of the lake having fun now. Marcy pushes one of the guys into the water, and we see a POV shot watching them. Marcy asks Brenda if she sees something when she grows scared. Ned calls for help from the water, and they all take off to help save him. They get him back to the dock, and Brenda does mouth-to-mouth, and then he grabs her and begins to kiss her. He just faked it. Alice is in her robe and looks for clothes, but is scared by a snake by her dresser. She yells out for Bill's help. The rest of the counselors run in. They all look under the bed for it. Jack starts to jump on the bed, destroying the room, and they find it. Bill kills it after chopping it up with a machete. A cop shows up on a motorcycle, and Ned is going ham in an Indian feather dress. The cop asks what's going on and says he's looking for crazy Ralph. They say they haven't seen anyone. Cop is radioed. He's needed back in town ASAP. He tells them to keep their noses clean and drives off. Alice is putting up the pots and pans and is jump scared by crazy Ralph in the closet. He says he's a messenger from God saying this place has a death curse. You're doomed if you stay and they need to go. He exits the cabin and gets on his bike as he tells them one more time they're doomed. They're doomed. They're cooking now, and Alice notices the light isn't working. Jack says he knows how to use a generator and gets it up and running. The lights come on now. We get some nature shots now, and we see Jack and Marcy holding hands walking by the lake. We see Ned by himself now by the lake walking around. We see an unknown person in a cabin, and Ned follows them in there. Hello, can I help you? Ned enters the cabin. Jack and Marcy walk up to the cabin, and he comments on the wind, and Marcy asks about Ned. He's acting like a jerk. Thunder rolls in and they sit down and converse. She tells Jack of a dream she had. They see lightning and head back inside. More nature shots of the lake and trees affected by the wind. Jack and Marcy get back to their cabin and begin to kiss and undress to make coitus. (laughs) Alice looks out her cabin and tells the others Jack and Marcy are going to get drenched. Bill strums a guitar by the fire with Alice and Brenda. Brenda says we're going to play strip monopoly to make it more fun. Back to Jack and Marcy having sex, and we now see Ned's dead body in the bunk above them with a slit throat. Alice gives out some beers as they play Monopoly. Marcy leaves to go pee, and Jack continues to lay in bed. More Monopoly, and back to Jack who lights a cigarette. Blood drips on him, then suddenly a hand grabs his forehead from under the bed, and an arrow pierces through his through the mattress in his throat, killing him. All right, Brian, go ahead, and I'll stop saying coitus now because it fucks me up every time. <laughs> Uh, look, I, I didn't say it in the last set of scenes because I ran my mouth too much, but Dustin's right. Ned is a fucking dipshit. I hate his character. Uh, no offense to Mark Nelson. Although I did read somewhere that a lot of his awkwardness was real because he had a real life crush on Janine Taylor. And hey, I get it. She's hot. Uh, but it's definitely the way it's written too. I mean, he fucking sucks. And I know that's some in-depth reviewing right there, but I'm sorry. The character fucking sucks to me. And that's just hammered home more with this whole Smalls and Wendy Peppercorn fake drowning shit that he pulls to get a kiss. So respectfully, fuck this guy. Um, the infamous snake scene. Look, I know it's been told a million times. Everyone knows by now that Savini borrowed it from someone on set. It was someone's pet and literally killed it for real on set while the owner cried off screen watching it happen. Savini's the goat and friend of the show, but still got to say dick move, Tom dick move. Um, I also have to say that, that I don't like the whole, you know, police motorcycle cop bit at all. Apparently I'm not the only one though. Uh, Victor Miller and crystal Lake memories and the other documentary. I couldn't think of its name earlier, but it's, it's his name was Jason. 
the cop wasn't his, wasn't in his original screenplay. Actually, the character was added in an uncredited rewrite by screenwriter Ron Kurz, who actually went on to write Friday the 13th Part 2. Uh, Miller's objection is due to like, you know, he wanted Camp Crystal Lake to be very rural and an isolated location, how it's like cut off from the main roads. And for Miller, like having the teens, early 20 something, whatever's, uh, be outside the help of like formal authority was to give the audience the feeling that no one could come out and save them. And I agree. I, I don't need to see crazy Ralph here again either. I don't know. It's, you know, I, I know it's to maybe throw in another red herring. But again, I'll, you know, I'll say, do you need red herrings when you won't ever even show the killer anyway, giving the audience zero chance to even guess it anyway? I mean, just make him like the foreshadower guy at the start and be done with it. I mean, hell, I mean, have him, I don't know, save Alice at the end or something or distract Pamela. I don't know. Cunningham definitely didn't succeed in making him a suspect, though, in my opinion. I thought it was just waste of time. Um Probably the best shots from around the camp, too, in this set of scenes. Something that not a lot in this franchise has gotten right. Uh, You know, I love how in this, as you know, you as an audience member know the lay of the land, like the lay of the camp. A lot of that's due to the fact that, you know, Camp Nobi Bosco, Nobi Bosco, Nobi Bosco, I can't ever pronounce that ever, had all the sets. You know, it was operational as a camp anyway. And, you know, uh, I believe the only set that they had to build was the bathroom set. Uh, but I love knowing the lay of the land and kind of getting the scale of this camp, something missing in a lot of the sequels. And uh, lastly, you know, there's definitely a lot of filler here that could have been cut. Now, when it gets night, though, and the killing starts, this honestly is my favorite set of scenes in the movie, which carries over into our next set as well. Like to clarify, I'm talking about when it turns night and then the killing starts. Um, Friday the 13th really starts then, I think. Um, I'll let the guys here talk about the semantics behind Jack's death too, but I still think Savini did an absolutely great job with it. Uh, Bacon actually says to this day that he signs more pictures of this scene than anything else he's been in. You know, this is another scene I think where the unrated has a longer sex scene and more arrow digging through the Jack's neck with him. Like I think he was panting for air after that was, um, it, and that was cut in the, the rated version, uh, shortened a little bit. Go ahead. Oh uh, yeah, so uh, we get introduced to all the counselors here, um, and they're pretty much just stock characters. And I know that Kevin Bacon went on to be a big deal, but I mean, he doesn't necessarily do anything special here by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, like you guys all said, I cannot stand the character of Ned. He's and it's not the actor's fault or anything. It's the way he was written, but he is without a doubt number one or two of the worst characters within this franchise. And I think the drop off is pretty significant. Um, so he's annoying. And then everyone else is just kind of there. Uh, so, and as much as I think this movie is fun and it doesn't quote unquote need much storytelling, I'm always going to err on the side of, I need a little something to invest in. Um, and the first time I ever saw this movie, I already knew what was coming. So that maybe is why it didn't click with me the first time or I just, th- there was no suspense. There was nothing, you know, and you really don't get anything with these counselors. You get them driving down the road to fucking dueling banjos or whatever, which is really just makes no fucking sense. It's completely out of left field. It doesn't, none of their characters act like that. It doesn't make any sense. And so I don't know. Uh, 
these characters are kind of the least important parts. I really can't be that mad. Let me meet Steve chopping wood. Serious question. Is this not the fourth film we've done where there's a man chopping wood within the first 30 minutes of this motherfucker? You've got, <laughs> well, well, that's not true. We haven't done the Amityville horror remake, but we've done the original one. So mm-hmm. chopping wood in that motherfucker, the witch, that man's chopping wood for no fucking reason at all. And in this movie, just a man chopping wood with his shirt off. What's the deal with chopping wood with no shirt on? Has anyone ever chopped wood before? Them splinters be coming back at you, man. That shit is not fun. I wear sleeves protected. What? I keep keep my shirt off sometimes when I'm chopping wood. I'm a wood chopper from way back, though, so I guess it's a little different. (laughs) You know G wood chopper. I'm a new uh, generation wood chopper, man. What can I say? Yeah, it's different in Tennessee and Florida, baby. Let's go. <laughs> well, this asshole can't chop wood either, so he must be from Florida. Yeah, he was he's, some really he's short arm and he looks terrible. Chopper. He looks yeah, no, I completely agree. Um but okay, so like uh you mentioned, Brian, a lot of this stuff with their interaction is filler to me. Maybe it's because I don't care that much about the characters. Really doesn't start to pick up until this really shitty looking ass uh lightning strike uh, uh Effect happens where you like see it on the counselor's face. God, it just looks like a flashing bulb. It looks like shit. Uh, it's, it's one of the poor effects from the movie. But the thunderstorm stuff on the lake looks pretty cool. Um, you, you know, you get all that, and then they go back, and Marcy and Jack start, you know, playing the no pants horizontal dance. And I think that's just kind of like a. This started this trope. It's not the first movie to ever have sex or anything, but within a horror film, this really started that like. And I know there was some of it in Halloween, but to me, this is the movie that kind of set off the on purpose. You have sex, you get killed. That's what happens. And so I think it's kind of fun to go back and visit the root of some of some of the tropes that exist within the horror genre. And and this is no different. Uh, obviously, we touch on it earlier. You see a whole ass <laughs> here. <laughs> but um, OK, so I actually really like this Jack's death. I think it works really well. I think it's obviously the most memorable kill of the film. You could argue here in a minute that it's not, but I, for me, it's the most memorable kill. And I think it looks really cool. Um, there's some stuff. I think I'm going to let Dustin touch on it if he wants, but there's some stuff that doesn't age great. But overall, kind of hard. A lot of that stuff feels like a nitpick. I think it looks really good, and it's memorable because it's Kevin Bacon. And like you mentioned, and I – I read that as well. It's just the scene that he's done that still gets talked about the most. That you know when he goes to conventions or does autograph signings or whatever. This is the thing, and and this man was in fucking Footloose, so this lets you know how memorable the scene is. Um, so I think this is a good set of scenes for the most part, more so on the back end. The first front half is a lot of filler. I completely agree about Ralph. Just go back and touch on that. As much as I like story in a film. Having Ralph be maybe this really nice bucket hat guy as the killer doesn't work. Yeah, I don't think it worked then, and it definitely doesn't work now with the benefit of hindsight. So I just think he's just kind of there for more filler. And um, this is the part of the movie that moves really slow until they start, you know, doing a little huggity huggity. You know what I mean? So uh, I think the back end is really good, and I think the front end is just a little bit too much filler for me. That's fair. So, um, first of all, when we get the counselors on the dock, I really wish I hadn't, like, this didn't stand out as much. But when Ned's, like, you know, faking his drowning, right before that, 
uh, you get Kevin Bacon walking up in a speedo, and my man was bricked up, like he was poking through that damn blue speedo. I'm like, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't need to see the Franken beans. That's just a personal opinion. Like I didn't need it really. But anyway, two dicks um, in movies back to back that we have recorded. It's unbelievable. Two yeah, what's what's going on here? Um, Ned Ned sucks, man. You said it, Brian. Like. This guy is cultural appropriation at its finest. They they could never get away with this character in 2022. When we, we, when we meet him, he's got a feather on his head. Then he just goes full-blown headdress and starts doing some kind of native dancing like he's a Tim McGraw song. Um, it is annoying as hell when the cop shows up. Like, I just... I That set of scenes, I agree, was unnecessary, but it also just made me hate Ned even more. Like, oh, I didn't mean anything, officer. I'm just having fun. It don't get smart with me. Oh, I'm really dumb. Like, oh, God, I hate that guy. But um, whatever. Ralph in the pantry, huh? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's that's where my man decided to come preach the gospel. It's just like standing in the pantry with the light off. Like, that's, I don't know why that just makes me love Ralph anymore. That's a crazy old coot right there. Um, Strip Monopoly, I got to be honest, sounds really fun. I uh, I've pitched the idea a couple times unsuccessfully, but... You know, to quote Jim Valvano, don't give up. Don't ever give up. I'm going to keep keep trying. I'm going I'm to play Strip Monopoly one of these days. I think the problem is that that game just takes too damn long. But um, Kevin Bacon's death, like you said, uh, is iconic. Like, it's just incredible effects and just not even effects, like just the optic. Not knowing. I, I think that the, it, it holds up in 2022. The only difference is, like I mentioned earlier, the... Uh, High definition didn't do this one any favor because it's you can clearly tell that the uh, latex torso that they used did not match up with Kevin Bacon's face. Either that or he didn't blend his foundation. I know a couple of girls in real life that look like that because they don't blend their foundation. So maybe that's what was going on. So but, do I, brother. Every <laughs> er, er, every Chili's I've ever walked in has got a few of them. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, Chili's. That's where I know them from. Um Kevin Bacon's character, so about this death, you know, while he was laying in bed with his throat impaled, uh, the blood in his neck's making little bubbles. So originally it was meant to seep out, but the apparatus didn't work, like the tube and the the uh, thing they had underneath there was like a little machine. It broke and it didn't cause the blood to flow like they wanted it to. So Tom Savini was actually under the bed. Uh, with his assistant, like while this was happening, and he grabbed the tube and ended up blowing into it, into it to make it flow. And this is what caused when it, when the blood splurts up into his mouth, like you see Kevin Bacon kind of react, and he's he's kind of visually like, oh shit! Like I think that's a genuine reaction. I don't think it was because it was supposed to just originally seep out, like kind of like uh, the throat slash earlier, I think. But uh, nonetheless, man, great, great, and like you said, for him to only be what you say twenty six at the time of this, just he is the goat. That being said, I can't call him the goat and not be pissed off at him because that is a complete dick move with the snake. Like, say what you want to about snakes. Like, people are afraid of them. Uh, you don't want to, uh, you know, they gross people out. That doesn't matter. That was someone's pet, and you asked to borrow animal, it, too, man. Didn't do anything. You asked to borrow it. So, spoiler alert: my least favorite kill in this movie, and my least favorite kill of any kill we've covered on this podcast, is the snake because that was a real freaking animal. Look how they massacred my boy. Um, but anyway, you know, we go back to 
the Monopoly game, couple questions here. How in the hell, how in the blue hell is this heavy rain supposed to jerk the door open like that? Because there's a little awning over that step outside the door there. You can see that when they open the door and they don't get rained on immediately. So clearly there's a covering there. So it's not like the water was pouring down onto the door. Number two, the door opens to the outside. So it's not like a gust of wind unless they had the windows open and it came all the way through the cabin. A gust of wind's not taking the door open. So I have issues with that. But number and then my other issue with this set of scenes is why the hell is the door being blown open? Gonna be like, oh, now's a good time to walk outside. No, because if the door's being pulled open by winds, it's clearly my, about to be a tornado in New Jersey. So just stay inside, stay as a group, buy yourself some more time. I don't know why that irritates me so much, but that's not an opportune time to go walking barefoot through the mud carrying your clothes half naked under a tarp. But you know, you could have just left the tarp inside. Go ahead. All right, Marcy makes it to the bathroom and someone enters the bathroom with her. She hears a noise and calls for Jack. She exits the stall and sees no one. She talks to herself in the mirror and she hears a rustling noise but ignores it. The water at the sink finally works and another rattling noise. She calls for Ned but no answer. She goes into another room and turns the light on. She flings open a shower curtain but sees nothing. She opens another shower curtain to nothing but we see an axe lift behind her in the shadows. She turns around and gets an axe to her face. Things are intensifying with Strip Monopoly and the door flings open. Brenda says she thinks she forgot and left her windows open in the cabin so she takes off. We see Steve at a diner now drinking some coffee and chatting with the waitress. He pays her and takes off leaving her the change. Steve drives away back to the camp. Brenda makes it to the bathroom humming. She brushes her teeth and we see a hand grab a shower curtain and then hide again. Brenda Brenda puts her rain jacket back on and looks one more time at the showers and leaves. The lights go out by the showers. We now see Steve's Jeep broke down on the side of the road. A cop car pulls up and gives him a ride after ribbing him about his Jeep going through anything. We see a POV shot walking up to Brenda's window and stare at her. Brenda lights a candle and lies in bed and reads. We hear a young voice yelling, Help me. We hear help me again and Brenda sets her book down. She grabs a flashlight and walks to her door. She follows the cries for help in the rain. Come quickly, please help me, the voice cries out. Where are you, Brenda yells out. We see someone turn all the lights on by the archery range. Brenda says it isn't funny anymore as she backs towards the targets. We hear a scream and we're back to Alice in her cabin. She plays the guitar briefly and tends to the fire. Bill comes back into the cabin and she says she thought she heard Brenda scream and the lights at the archery range came on. The two go check out Brenda's cabin, but she's not there. Bill notices a bloody axe in her bed. Back outside to look, and they go into Jack's cabin, but don't see anything. Now to the bathrooms. Alice says we should call someone. They go to the office and try and call someone, but the door's locked. Alice breaks in a window and unlocks the door. The phone's dead, so they try the payphone now, but we see the wire's been cut. They now try and drive away, but the car's dead. Alice says we should just hike away now. Bill reassures her it's nothing serious and they'll joke about it tomorrow. The cop tells Steve there's more crime in general on a full moon. He tells Steve Crazy Ralph was out there today. The cop is called to an accident and he drops Steve off and drives away. Steve keeps walking and someone shines a bright light at him where he can't see. He walks towards the person and is stabbed. A POV shot walks into the high voltage room and cuts the generator off. Bill fires up the two lanterns and tells Alice he's going to go check out the generator. 
She offers to go with him, but he tells her to get some sleep. Bill checks out the generator and figures out it's not out of gas. More inspection and suddenly we get Alice loudly yelling out Bill. She walks through the cabin and she makes some coffee. And the next set of scenes are the ending. Go ahead, Brian. So my favorite set of scenes continues here with Marcy's death scene in the bathroom. You know, Talk about the killer doing some stuff that a woman wouldn't be able to do, like fucking putting Ned up on the top bunk. Her old ass ain't doing that. Yeah. And that kind of shit's all throughout. But but anyway, a little tidbit on, on Janine Taylor. It was her first role. Uh, it was also her first and only on-screen nude scene. She appeared in uh, one more film two years later about Princess Diana, and then she opted to leave acting completely. Um, I, I thought she did a great job personally, especially in her death scene here in the bathroom. Um, she does seem a little drunk doing the whole Catherine Hepburn impression alone in the mirror and laughing about it. Maybe have had them drink a little bit before. I mean, it would have made more sense. Uh, but I thought the after effects looked fantastic. My only complaint is that Cunningham's dumbass left her scared face like on the screen too long. Uh, when it transitions from the real axe hitting the light to like the fake axe in her head, it just looks weird. But that's totally the issue I feel like. I think it's it's the cut there. Um, also, logistically, where the hell was the killer even hiding? But anyway, um, shout out to Lori Bautram as well as, as Brenda to hear her, uh, her character in this movie. I really, for some reason, was really drawn to. I mean, it helps that she was absolutely beautiful. But she actually left the business too after this movie. And, and unfortunately, she actually passed away in 2007 at only 49 years old because of uh, pancreatic cancer. Um, the last thing she did was Cinemasker's Monster Madness that same year. I uh, I laughed at the wardrobe choice for her in those pajamas. It looked like something from fucking Scrooge or something that they put her in. And, oh, and while I'm on wardrobe, everyone has a she raincoat. Was, she was dressed like Grandpa Joe from Willy Wonka. There, yeah. Oh, there you go. That's exactly that's exactly right. <laughs> Glad you but, said I mean, that because I actually you know, had that in my notes. Oh, that's funny. Um, but like the rain, the raincoat thing, like everyone has a damn raincoat. Is that something just like everyone carried with them back in the day? Like, but I don't know. But as far as she's concerned, I thought it was dumb that she was in the bathroom and the light was still swaying from Marcy's death. Uh, I did like the hand just barely coming around the curtain though there, but her wandering like in the rain in her Scrooge or a grandpa Joe outfit was not only like, it was hard to see in the dark, but like what the hell happened to the raincoat? She just like literally just had. Damn, Brenda. Um, I will say, though, Bill and Alice's flirtations, I, I wish we were explored a little bit more. Um, I'm sure I'm the last one in the world to find out, but I just found out recently that Bill was played by Harry Crosby, uh, Bing Crosby's son. The producers actually have been accused of casting Harry to further mimic Halloween because of Jamie Lee Curtis and Janet Lee. But like, today, everyone involved claims that the prospect of having Crosby's son as the as the male lead was something that they only like later realized could be used in marketing down the road and never really took advantage of it then. Um, you know, so this entire, Oh yeah, listen, this, I said a lot already, but this entire group of scenes, while there were some good in here, there was a whole lot of shit. Like there was a whole lot of filler. And I think that this entire scene with Steve Christie, the whole subplot with the diner and him wrecking all that should be cut. Like, I thought it was pointless to pull us away from the camp for one thing. Plus, like you could have had another red herring with, oh shit, well, where the hell Steve Christie went? Like he could be a possibility. He could be the killer later on showing up dead. Like we didn't even get the on screen death. To me, yep. it just added more time to the runtime, which is very bloated. 
Yeah, talk about a mixed bag of scenes, man. Because there, this starts with a bang. I love how it starts, but chop within some of the man. It is a grab bag. It, it's like going trick or treating, and you, you know, one minute you pull out the Reese's cup, and the next minute someone dropped off, you know, the Old Testament. It, it's it's really not it's not what you want as a <laughs> as a moviegoer. And not there's anything wrong with the Old Testament, but like I'm here to be entertained. Damn it! Like I don't I don't want to read this oh, shit. Gosh. That's such a great line. I've got to make a shirt with that on there. Uh, but no, really, I, I mean, it starts off really good. And I love the kill of Alice. I go back and – or excuse me, not Alice, Marcy. I go back and forth on which one I like more between her and Jack. Like, I really do. I actually think the axe kill looks damn good. And then they talked about this in the little Netflix episode, the movies that made us. But I, I noticed it as well. The Obviously – in the shot, they use the real axe, and for effect, they kind of hit the light, the overhead light, and then they don't ever actually show you the axe hitting the face. But because they hit the light, you get that impact noise and that and and that movement, and then it shows obviously a prop axe slashed into her face. I think it looks incredible. It still looks really good. It looks like it's straight out of twenty twenty two to me. Yeah. I think they do a great job with that kill. I love it. I think it's good. Then there is filler. There really is not a whole lot that goes on when they go back to this scene where they're playing the strip monopoly or whatever the fuck. Like there is not a whole lot that goes down and I can't stand it. It's bland dialogue. It's bland characters. Then you get Brenda, which you mentioned that just kind of disappears. Her, her, her kill is off screen and it's it, it's unfortunate. Like, I don't really understand why she's even here. Like it's now I know I talked about stock characters and sometimes that's fun, but like, they didn't give me a reason to not like her. They didn't give me a reason to like her. She's just there. And then she's reading a book and then she's gone. Like I just, there's a lot about that that I just think is, eh, you could do a little better than that. Like you got to give me something to sink my teeth into there. So that was a waste. I agree with you hundred percent, Brian. All this stuff with Steve Christie, cut this shit. It is such a waste of my time. This movie is supposed to be about, I mean, they said as much, kills and just, you know, cool shit on screen, teens getting slashed. That's what this movie should be. And all this other stuff is just pointless to me. I, uh, you know, uh, but another, so again, two, you know, it starts off so good, so well. And then we kind of get, it kind of starts to teeter off. And by the way, and Dead Meat talked about it in his kill count, but trust me, I have it as well. Alice making coffee lasts forever. Why the fuck do I care about three and a half minutes of Alice making fucking coffee? That is, it, 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 it's boring. And again, I like this movie for what it is, but this bloats the runtime. You feel all 90 minutes of this movie when you watch it. And I have the Blu-ray. You you guys will be proud of me. I watched it not on one and a half speed the first time. I rewatched it for this show so I could take notes. I was a good boy. But when I rewatched it just to be fresh, of course I watched one and a half speed. That coffee scene flew by. But when you watch it on normal speed, it fucking takes all day. And it's annoying as shit. So just kind of like very boring stock stuff. That happens, but it just so happened to start off with what I think could be rivaled as the best kill of the film. So uh, a little bit of a grab bag here. 
Um, I actually, I really like this set of scenes. I like this movie a lot more from this point forward than I did, before, you know, leading up to this point, in my opinion. It's about to get um, really good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so first of all, you know, Marcy going in there and with, with the shower curtain, um, I, come on. She looks at the shower curtain once and then she turns back and then looks again and the cl- shower curtain is clearly further scooted down the, the pole there. Like, go over there and check it right then. You could have saved yourself, dumbass. Um, my issue with the death here though, is that I didn't need the shadow on the wall behind her because we saw the shadow and then we see the actual ax. Then we see the ax clanging into the light fixture, then the ax in the face. Like, I, I don't think we need the shadow on the wall just because we hear the music. We've been accustomed to knowing that she's in imminent, imminent, imminent danger. God, if I could talk. Um, and then I agree with what you said, Mike, though. I, I think it was. Tom Savini, I heard him say that uh, he showed you the real because it was a real axe. He showed you the real axe so that you know that it is a real object and then clanged it on the uh, light to show you that it has actual weight. And then they obviously use a rubber axe uh, on the face. And I think that was a brilliant touch there to show you the actual axe. So again, cut the shadow and I think it makes it a little better. Um, That's a very little um, nitpick though Steve's whole subplot I agree come on I think that a better ending to this movie is Steve and Mrs. Voorhees arriving at the same time and then they're both trying to convince Alice like he's done all this she's done all this I think that's a better ending um, because it adds to the well who actually did it but instead we get him you know, first of all, when he's in the diner there, uh, the waitress looked just like Roz from Monsters, Inc. So, what are you we, talking about, Dustin? <laughs> we get back to the camp here, um, you know, after he's gone about his merry way. And also, I really hate that they drive the exact same Jeep. Like, I'm not saying they look alike. I think I read that it was, they only had one Jeep. So, both Mrs. Voorhees and Steve... Had the exact same Jeep, Jesus further muddying Christ. the waters. I didn't know so, that. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. It, yeah, pay attention. They're the same color, and I think the difference is one had a... Like, they, they changed the top on it to try to throw you off a little bit, but it's the same Jeep. So, first of all, though, who whose voice was that that was yelling for Brenda? That might be my biggest nitpick with this movie, is because when she's in there reading her book, dressed like Grandpa Joe, we hear, Help me! Well, wasn't it because well at the end doesn't Pamela kind of do that kid's voice or do Jason's voice? And but it doesn't yeah. sound the same. Back? But it well, doesn't I sound mean, the same. That's well, that's what I'm saying. Like it doesn't it's sound. It's, it's not the same voice. If it would have sounded the same, then I could I would have totally bought it, been okay with it. But it, it it legit sounds like a little boy yelling. And when she's saying "kill him, mommy," in the next set of scenes, it's it sounds like an old lady doing a child's voice. And so then you go to the next step. Spoiler alert the last very last scene is supposed to be a dream. So uh, if it really is a dream and Jason (laughs) and Jason is not alive, then that makes that voice even make, make even less sense because there is no, there are no little boys here and that's what it sounds like. So that's a very big issue I have with this movie. Maybe my biggest, Um, but I, one of my favorite shots in this entire movie though, is when they're going to investigate and they have to break in, they have to bust a window out and go inside. I love the fact the camera stays outside 
and you see them rummaging through the cabin there to try to find what they're looking for. But then the camera just pans out a little bit and then pans up and then pans over. Boom. Phone line cut. I think that is, that doesn't fit with the rest of this movie to me. It's so well done. Like that's such a nice touch. Everything to this point has been pretty cut and dry and that's an actual nice subtlety um, shot there. Then we get Steve's death and this is what I was talking about. So I don't, I do like that when he does arrive and he's blinded by the light uh, and he's walking up and says, Oh, what are you doing out here? Like, I like that familiarity. It, it lends itself to the first set of scenes when the guy's like, Oh, we weren't doing anything. Like they, he feels this sense of security because he knows who she is. And then the kill is actually very lame though. That would, that might be my least favorite kill if they didn't kill an actual living snake in this movie. But, um, I just, I oh, really man, take, that's my least favorite too. Just spoiler alert. So you yeah. I really take issue though with the fact that we just see him lunge towards the camera a little bit and the shock look on his face and that's it. Now we do get to see his body later, but um, that's a pretty lame kill. And again, I go back to what I just said. I think it would have been more effective had you had uh, Alice discover Steve and Mrs. Voorhees at the same time. They both pull up at the same time and she doesn't know who to trust, who to not. I think you could have cut the whole diner scene and the cop scene and just have them both pull up in a teal Jeep. Maybe that's the reason they didn't do it. It's because they only have one teal Jeep, but I think it just would have been more effective use of the, of the runtime to have it play out like that. Um, Cause there's a lot of filler in the next set of scenes too. That fight scene takes way too long, but anyway, um, the last thing I'll say here is I didn't actually have issue at all with the, uh, with her in the cabin making coffee and all that, because the reason I, I feel that way, because I've heard that criticism before. The reason I feel that way is just because I think it's doing a, a great job of lulling you into a false sense of security. Like you almost like it, it kind of brings you back down it, to, to quote a wrestling tone. You, you got to cool them down before you heat them back up. And I think it does a great job of like, okay, she like, we've got a minute to breathe. She doesn't know how bad things really are out there right now. She's just making coffee. Let's, let's take a second. And then, bam, it ramps it right back up for the finale. Shit, it's lulling me into a nap. Lull these nuts. Leave it in. Leave it in. All right, here's the ending. Alice goes outside and calls for Bill. She checks out the generator room and only finds his raincoat. The door closes and we see Bill has been he's stuck to the door with multiple arrow shots. Alice runs back to her cabin and she begins to barricade and tie the door shut. Alice grabs her lantern and a baseball bat and checks out the kitchen. She closes some blinds. She asks herself, what am I going to do? And suddenly Brenda's body is thrown through the window. Alice cries as she crawls on the floor and goes outside when she sees Steve's Jeep pull up. She soon realizes it's not Steve. It's a woman named Miss Voorhees, a friend of the Christie's. She hugs Miss Voorhees and tells her all her friends are dead. She says she'll take care of Alice. She tells her she'll go look, and she's not afraid. The two go inside, and she seems in shock when she sees Brenda's dead body. Oh, God, this place. Steve never should have opened this place. She now tells Alice the story of Jason drowning back in 57. Jason wasn't a very good swimmer. We can go now, she says. Pamela now sees her son drowning in a vision, and she tells Alice Jason is dead, and it's his birthday. She says she couldn't let Steve reopen this place. Pamela blames Alice and pulls out a knife and charges Alice. Alice hits her with a fire poker in the arm and back 
knocking her down. Alice runs out the door, and Alice finds Annie's dead body in the Jeep. She runs into the woods and finds Steve's dead body hanging upside down. Pamela does a young boy's voice, saying, Kill her, Mommy. Don't let her live. Alice gets a gun now and looks for ammo as Pamela turns the generator back on. Alice can't find any bullets because they're all locked up. Pamela enters the room as Alice points the gun at her. Kill her, Mommy. Kill her, Pamela says. Pamela pursues Alice and the two women fight. She smacks the hell out of Alice and slams her through a table. Alice knocks her over with the gun and runs away again. Pamela chases after Alice again, but Alice pulled a little sneaky on her. Pamela recites, kill her, Mommy. Get her. She can't hide. Alice is back to her cabin and cries as she sees Brenda's dead body. Alice now hides in the food closet as Pamela enters the cabin. Alice ducks down right beside the handle as it begins to rattle. Pamela breaks the door down and unlocks it. She swings a machete at her but misses, and Alice hits her in the head with a pan, knocking her to the ground. And she again runs away and stops at a dock by the lake. She sits on a canoe as Miss Voorhees sneaks behind her and attacks her. The two women wrestle and fight, and Alice is bitten and has her head beat into the dirt until she knocks Miss Voorhees off of her. Alice grabs the machete and cuts her head smooth off. Miss Voorhees' body falls to the ground. Alice gets in a canoe and paddles out into the middle of the lake. Next morning, we see Alice slumped in the canoe as a car, a cop car drives up. The cop yells for Alice and she sits up, but a dirty, mud-covered boy jumps from the lake, pulling her under the water. Alice wakes up in a hospital that was just a dream. They come for her, saying it's all over. The cop tells her her parents are on the way up. Alice is told everyone else was dead. She asks if the little boy Jason was dead. The cop says, ma'am, we found a little boy. She says, then he's still there. Music plays as we get zoom-in shots of the lake with ripples on the water and end credits roll. All right, Brian, what do you think of the ending? Now, Dustin won't agree, but God almighty, <laughs> this is the slowest third act in all of history until Betsy Palmer comes on the scene. Um, now, you know, watching Alice, like Mike said, doing God knows what. Um, I mean, we have 26 minutes of the movie left here at this point, and it literally should maybe be three to five minutes. Seriously, like eight max. We get Brenda flying through a window, which Pamela would absolutely not be able to do. You're telling me her old ass is doing all this shit, like hanging people up on a door with arrows. How'd you pick him up, Pamela? No. Uh, I do think Palmer, well, especially did a- since especially since that was Tom Savini's body that threw oh, yeah. through the window. That wasn't know, even that's a hilarious fun fact. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, and you can't unsee that either. I say once you know it, you can't unsee it. It's like that old uh, Michael Jordan commercial where it's like his mom, and then it shows you know his mom Duncan, but it's really just some guy with a wig, and it yeah. looks nothing yeah, like. That's, that's exactly. exactly how it's. Do you like. know what it reminded me of? Is watching. Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and every time they throw Jazz out the window yeah. or out the door, it's the same one from the first season. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, anyway. Um. So I, but I do think Palmer does a great job though when she gets on screen. Like Mike gave her flowers earlier. Um. But again, my script doctoring would have had her at the start in the cafe, like Betsy wanted, then had two killers, like had either Steve Christie or Crazy Ralph helping her. Um. I think it would have solved a lot of the problems here. Look, and I've been very vocal in the past with my dislike of decapitations unless you're a big Tyler Maine, big Hulkin man. So this is, or zombie. Okay, we'll go with that too. But this is probably a hot take because it's so embedded in Friday lore. 
not zeitgeist. I said lore, not zeitgeist. <laughs> so, but so to say I don't care for her cutting Pamela's head off is an understatement, um, or at least give it a few hacks. I mean, okay, hell, when you had Steve Christie at the start and he was chopping wood like a dickhead, have Alice step in and show him how it's done. Like it would have at least taken two seconds and explained Alice's chopping ability here. And I mean, and, and also like, what did Pamela do by the way? Like throw her through the window and then sprint to the Jeep and drive it up in that like 10 seconds. I mean, okay. But anyway, now I called her Pamela, but the killer of this movie is just credited as Mrs. Voorhees. Fun fact that I think I had some Mandela effect going on here because I was like, really? But yeah, her first name is not revealed as Pamela until a shot of her gravestone is shown in part four of the final chapter. Blew my mind. Uh, but the complete finale was actually recut a little bit. We get four minutes of, of different footage, not necessarily extra, but the unrated shows Alice hitting off Jason's mother's head, like, you know, obviously with a machete, but a shortcut to Alice's appalled face, then a close-up of Mrs. Voorhees' headless torso, her hands are like reaching for the head that's no longer existing. Her very manly hands that I saw somewhere too, but you can't unsee that either. <laughs> but uh, finally, you know, she drops to the side. The beheading and her reaching hands are actually all edited together. Just then, Alice is shown. Then we cut back to Mrs. Voorhees' hand before she drops to the side. Um, you know, we, we, we talked about them lifting this final jump scare too in the canoe from Carrie. Apparently, regardless where it came from, in my opinion, it was effective. Um, forget that there's no reason why she would be in a canoe being weird like that anyway. But a lot of testimonies on those docu documentaries we discussed earlier, like they, they recall that audience members were beginning to gather their things, put on their coats. That's how old that was. Put it on their coats. Whenever they saw the police arriving during the tranquil like scene of Alice in the Lake and believing the movie was coming to a close, were completely taken by surprise, quote, shocking, even the most hardened viewers. That's something I would have loved to have seen in person. One of the very few uh, legendary jump scares that I think I would have loved to have seen in person in a theater back in 1980. Um, but go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I actually really like this. And I know it's a little bloated and I know, you know, Dustin and many others complain about how long this fight scene goes. But I think this is really good. I, I, you know, like you mentioned, you know, Brenda going through the window. You, you, you could cut all that shit. I mean, she's so irrelevant to the plot, and it's Tom Savini any fucking way. So all of that stuff. But I think from the moment we get Betsy Palmer, I'm really interested. I think she's a captivating character as Pam Voorhees. I think the acting is really, really good. I love the fact that you can kind of see her change as she arrives as this, like, comforting human and slowly but surely kind of turns into this crazed psycho killer. I, I I love that that character evolution. I think it's really good, and it happens fast, but I think it's done really well and acted and portrayed well by Betsy. Um, I actually really like, you know, once we get that turn and she, you know, starts coming after Alice, I, I, I like this a lot, man. I think the fight scene, I mean, it's not they live or anything. <laughs> which is epic but i think it's really really good for what it is it's shot real dark um and savini and his guy choreographed that scene and i think it's i don't know man i, I think it's a little bit of fun it's something different um and i love again i said at the top i love the reveal that it's pam Voorhees. 
um, especially with the benefit of hindsight, knowing, you know, what Jason becomes and how the mom's head is in other movies and everything else. Like, I think it just kind of, it's nice to go back and visit how that lore got started. Um, so I actually really like it. I'm okay with the decapitation. I'm a little more like you where I don't love decapitation in film unless it's for a reason. Uh, and I don't necessarily think this had a purpose. You could have just, you know, axe in the face or, you know, knife in the face or whatever. And that probably would have gotten the point across that she's dead. But, um, but I guess that sets up what happens in later movies where and Voorhees head is involved. So I guess that's something to take away from it. Um, I love this canoe scene. I think it's, it, it, it's really classic. It's one of those scenes where every time you see it, you're like, wow, that's cool, man. I just love how they pulled it off. I think, um, having Jason come out of the lake works really well. Every time I watch it, I don't think it's over the top. I don't think it's cheesy. I think it's effective. Um, now that being said, I hate this ending in the hospital. I think it's unnecessary. It bloats the runtime. It's completely there for no reason to me. Um, yes. even the man, we never found a little boy. Like, I don't even think that's necessary. It's a classic line. But if this movie ends as Jason jumps out of the lake, I think it's a perfect ending for this movie and a really good, to me, a good springboard for a sequel. Um, Leave it ambiguous. Yeah. Leave it open. Leave leave it how that goes and see where the franchise goes. Because as we know, Jason all of a sudden becomes an older man in in part two. And it's really a, a year in real time. And who knows? how long in their time period. But I mean, that's kind of beside the point. I just think that, wow, what a cool way to end the movie that just that cliffhanger, that wow factor that you could have gotten off of that. And there's all this stuff in the hospital, I think is pointless. So all in all, I'd really like the set of scenes. I think it ends the movie. Well, it runs a little long in the tooth, but I think it's very, very effective. And the acting is, is probably some of the best in the film because of Betsy Palmer. All right. Yeah, I really like the the ending. Um, ex- like except except for like I said, I think the fight scene just goes on a little too long, but that's okay. So I, I have issues with it as well. Uh, Brian, you mentioned how she's supposed to have done this. How does she lift his body up and put him, pin him to the door with those arrows? I'm just not buying it. Um, now, when Alice goes back to the cabin, I have a, I have a pretty big issue here because. First of all, she gets inside and she ties a fantastic knot on the door. Like, that was impressive. You can tell she's been to camp before, um, how she, she tied that knot. I'm not sure what kind of knot it was, but it's one of those you you make it and then you slide it down. That was impressive. Um, but she took a little bit. It went on a little bit too long with her stacking the shit in front of the door like she's in Scooby-Doo. Um <clears throat> But the issue that I have is not that. The issue that I have is that after she stacks all the stuff in front of the door, she goes over to the window that is to the right of the door, if you're from her perspective. She closes one of the blind, uh, one of the curtains and then struggles with the other and just leaves it half closed. And then she doesn't close any more of them. And she proceeds to walk around in front of windows with a lantern. It's dark outside. It's lit up inside and you have a lantern. Kill the lights, dummy. Like, if you're trying to hide, kill the lights. That That's my biggest pet peeve with this whole ending is uh, how stupid that was. And then she goes into the kitchen, and she closes one curtain, doesn't close the other, and then a body that's not a woman comes flying through the window, 
Tom Savini. Um, my my hope is that that wasn't that that was a that was real. That the snake owner finally got his revenge and said, "You know what, Tom? You're going through a damn window." But I know that's not the case. Um, <laughs> like I said, we get the uh, the introduction of Mrs. Voorhees, and I just really think that it would have been cooler if they both showed up at the same time. And she doesn't know who to trust. But I'm not gonna. I've already said that. That's fine. But then this fight it just lasts too damn long. Um, we get her escaping. She's running off, and then Steve's body falls in the exact same manner that a body falls in Halloween 78. Like that's a direct ripoff. Um, yes. But how did she get Steve's body up there in the first place? Okay. And then we get uh, Betsy Palmer, or I'm sorry, Mrs. Voorhees with the whole killer mommy and the child's voice. This is again, what I'm saying. If you listen to it, it's not the same kid voice that we heard yelling for Brenda, but we can forgive it. But the whole killer mommy, you know, that's where we get the key, 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 ma, 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 Brian. Because that's what he was, it was meant to resemble Jason's voice saying, kill, 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 mom, mom, mom. And it was, you know, Manfredini who, uh, his voice did it. He recorded it into a microphone using a delay effect. So that's pretty cool. But, you know, it's definitely key, 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 ma, ma, ma. Anyway, uh, I'm I'm not not being, I'm not biting on this. I'm not being snobbish about it. I'm just saying (laughs) that, you know, I'm here to inform. That's all. Um, And then, you know, when we get to the fight scene in the in the next cabin, Betsy Palmer's in there throwing live rounds. She was really slapping the shit out of Alice because Betsy Palmer, you know, comes from a stage background. And in theater, you don't have the magic of camera hiding that they're not really making contact. So she's in there throwing live rounds and smacking the shit out of her. And I think that's pretty funny. But um, I will say, though, if I'm getting smacked in the face, uh, a gun butt to the box is pretty effective. It will definitely help you get away. She took <laughs> she took the butt of that gun and just smashed it right up in her corn cutter, man. That's incredible. I hate how Alice kept like knocking her down and then just leaving her. Like she she knocks her down at least four times. It's like, okay, this should be good enough. I'm gonna go. After about the second time, I'm like, okay, she's not she's not good. I gotta actually kill this woman or tie her up or something. But um you know what? You just got to know. I guess she didn't have the Mortal Kombat voice saying "finisher," but um, then you know when we get the actual death, to quote Michael Scott, her kappa was detated. What a beheading! That was Ned Stark like. I think the reason they did it, though, I agree with what you guys are saying. I, it's not believable at all. She just wielded a machete, and it, it was too. It went through it like butter which it was a foam head, but I think that this was just to throw Tom Savini a bone for his effects and the rest of the stuff. They wanted to let him have something that looked cool, like a decapitation in 1980. So I think that's the reason they did it, because if if it's me, I probably just have her do machete to the head, kind of like the axe to the face, and just have one of those type effects, because it's much more believable. Yeah. But I think they wanted to throw... I, I'm guessing that's probably not at all what it is, but I would guess that they just wanted to throw him a bone and let him do something different and cool there. Um, the jump scare and it all being a dream, like I don't have a problem with that. Because when you look at this movie as a standalone, because when they made this movie, it wasn't immediately certain that they were gonna they were gonna make a sequel. Like this was admittedly just a cash grab for Sean Cunningham. He just wanted to make some quick money. So I don't think that any anyone had any idea what the franchise would would evolve to but 
you know, when you look at that and you say it's just a dream, so Jason is not real. She's just, she's traumatized and she imagined the whole thing. Okay. I think, though, that had they known going into this that there was definitely going to be a sequel, and okay, the sequel has to have adult Jason, I think it would have been more effective to have this movie take place in like 1964, 1960. Just, you know, not that far removed from uh, Jason drowning because then when he jumps up out of the water as a youth, then when you flash forward to when 19 or the second one takes place, okay, he's a full grown adult. It makes sense now. I don't know. It, that, that just, that bothers me. If you're going to, that's always bothered me about this franchise is how quickly he aged once he yeah. emerged out of the water. It's like he was just. And, it was, and like you said, it was easy to fix because the very beginning it just says present day. So you could have made that date whenever you wanted to. You're absolutely yeah. 100% right. I mean, that's why, that's why Adam Marcus had that whole, by the way, his interview, don't go out there.com. That's why, mm-hmm. he, you know, he talked about him trying to fix all that shit because it's exactly what you said. It's just a clusterfuck. But given what we got, I don't have a problem with the hospital scene that, you know, Mike, you said could have been cut completely. It could have completely. But given that we got part two and Alice did reprise her role for that film and that film only, I'm okay with it because it leads to her paranoia in this in the opening of the second movie when she's answering the phone. She's still spooked and freaked out like, okay, I get it. But, you know, the original ending of the movie just had Mrs. Voorhees getting her head cut off. But they obviously they needed a final jump scare something what they call a chair jumper a chair jump scene something like that and so they wanted to rip off like like carrie that's the exact movie that they reference when the hand comes up at the end of carrie and the coolest thing about that though is they painted off like well if we paint it all as a dream it doesn't matter that jason's dead like no one's going to question that we just need something to grab their attention and scare them but brian de palma who directed carrie and also directed my favorite movie of all time scarface I like his quote about the ending of this movie. He said he liked it. I saw it coming. So I thought that was cool. Uh, he, he didn't get offended or butthurt or I'm going to sue you, rip this off from me or anything. I, he just kind of tongue in cheek. I saw it coming. So I thought that was cool. But anyway, it's a good ending, I think, um, to a classic movie. All right. Any more final thoughts? We jump into social media comments and questions real quick. All right, let's jump on Instagram first. Uh, Jman5765 commented, this is a, a classic. Love this movie. Can't wait to listen to the episode. Heck yeah, brother. That's what I'm talking about. Let's jump over to Facebook real quick. Joe Swinford, big fan of the show, commented, the OG with the emoji with the starry eyes. I guess she likes this movie. Uh, she has good taste. <laughs> she also has part seven as number one, Dustin. Remember that. She has bad taste. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Joe. Uh, Michelle Merza commented, yes, love that you guys are doing this. When you guys watch this for the first time, how surprised were you that Ms. Voorhees was the killer? Like Dustin mentioned at the beginning, I or he asked me, uh, part six was the first one I saw, so, and I honestly don't even remember the first time I watched this, so I don't remember how I felt, honestly. Yeah, I already knew going in, so that was kind of spoiled for me, so, but I still same. thought it was, I, I still think it's very effective. So, same. so Brian, you said same. You knew it going in. So you two knew it going in. Jay, uh, Nico, you had saw part six first. So you knew Jay, You knew about Jason first. I actually did see this one first. Nice. And I yeah, uh, didn't know it going in. It was one of those things. I, I didn't watch it as a small child, but I did watch it uh, younger. And I knew that the other ones were out there. But I was like, well, you got to start with the original. I thought they all tied together like an idiot. 
So um, I watched it, and I actually liked it. It kind of, I I, I kind of had the same uh, experience that I mentioned earlier that my lady of the moment was feeling, where I was like, oh, it's not Jason. So I think it's I think it's great. All right, let's uh, knock out Twitter real quick. Uh, Scare Horror uh, tweeted us saying, yes, please, to our review. So I hope you enjoy our review. Uh, Sean Irwin tweeted us, how did how this franchise succeeded with this as the initial entry is amazing. Remake this movie for 2022, not a Jason movie, this movie. Oh, Ugh, wait, I wait, I, I got to know. That's kind of confusing. So that is confusing. Does, does he like this movie or not like this movie? I need to know what side of the fence I need to be on because it's always the opposite of Sean. So I, I couldn't really gather. I, it, yeah, I I'm, I, gather I'm not going to lie. He got me in the first half. Because the first <laughs> half, it sounds like he doesn't like it. But right. then the second is like, oh, this one's so good. It needs a remake. So I'm confused as well. I'm also confused. I think Sean is too. He thinks Nick Cage is a good actor. So <laughs> I think everyone's confused. Hey, Sean, follow up with us. Uh, follow up. Send us another tweet Sean, there. Sean's going to go steal the Declaration of Independence. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Andrew Ferguson, big fan of the show. Uh, he tweeted us and asked, are y'all aware that you can tour the camp it was filmed at? Yes. And, th- and yes. then Money Man Brian said, let's start a GoFundMe for some tickets, LOL. Yeah. Like anyone on this cast or this uh, panel other than me needs to go fund me for that. Oh, fuck oh, off, pal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The, la- the last tweet we have is uh, from Kevin Scanlon, big fan of the show. Definitely not a bad film, but if I were ranking the franchise, then there would be several films I would put ahead of this one. I did, enjoy some- I did enjoy some of the effects in this one, though, particularly Kevin Bacon's death. Looking forward to the review, fellas. Appreciate that, Kevin. Uh, we well, appreciate you listening. You know, the, the thing is... The definition of several is more than two, but not many. So he's saying he has a fourth. That's what I take that as. He has three above it, and that's respectable. Oh, <laughs> All right, let's jump into fun facts. I only have two. I'll go real quick. Uh, after the film's success, Adrian King was stalked by an obsessed fan. Terrified, she asked that her role in part two be small as possible. She did not take any other roles or make convention appearances for almost 20 years after its release. And the last one I have is uh, Victor Miller wrote the script in about two weeks. And interestingly, Miller never went to summer camp when he was a kid. And I got both from IMDb. I just thought that's that was actually cool. sad about her, though, man. Like people need to yeah, stop yeah. being weirdos. This is 40 years ago, but stop being weirdos. Yeah. And this was actually the reason why she didn't take that offered role to her in 13 Fanboy. The yeah. the one Deborah Voorhees made because it was so close to what really her happened. Real to life. Her. Yep. All right, Dustin, you go ahead and go with uh your fun facts. All right, I got I got a little bit, so buckle in. Uh, the original name for this movie, of course, was Long Night at Camp Blood. Now, there's mixed opinions of whether that was an official original name or just a working title to uh, protect the identity at the studios, but I heard it straight from the horse's mouth. Victor Miller, he said, Long Night at Camp Blood. Victor Miller also said that he watched Halloween, wanted to rip it off because of how successful it was, and he said that the uh, thought process was you had to have a prior evil, you had to have horny teenagers that are alone and then just kill them one by one. It's a recipe for success. So I like that. Um, Betsy Palmer said that if it were not for the fact that she was in desperate need of a new car, she would have never accepted the role for this movie. Uh, In fact, she read that the script or after she read the script, she called the movie a quote piece of shit (laughs) over the years though. She did warm up to it and she's been grateful that it's, uh, you know, kept her relevant later in her career and this also was her first film in 21 years. Her last movie, her last credited role before this was 1959. So that's pretty remarkable. 
Um, Sean Cunningham wanted to cast his son, Noah, Noel. Noel? I'm not sure. Noel, I think. Noel? I don't think he's a Seminole, but uh, as Jason. Uh, but his, his wife, no. Susan Cunningham, wouldn't let him do this. Uh, this one was very shocking to me. Well, not shocking that she turned it down, but just the possibilities. Sally Field was offered the role of Alice, but she turned it down. Man, you want to talk about when I, when I was a, a youth and I used to watch East, uh, when I used to watch uh, Smoking the Bandit, Sally Field was a fox. Anyway, uh, this movie was nominated for a Razzie for the worst movie of the year in 1980 when it was released. So Razzies can go to hell. Um, <laughs> last one I got body count officially 11 deaths in this movie, including the real snake, which I'm not going to let go ever. Good. Good. You shouldn't because that's fucked up. Um, all right. So I have three now. Um, so producer Steve Miner, producer Steve Miner, initially thought that it was an idiotic idea to bring Jason back in sequels. He wasn't your villain. He's just a figment of someone's imagination. Despite this, he went on to direct the next two Friday the 13th movies starring Jason as the villain um, and gave him <laughs> the iconic hockey mask. So, you know, le- listen to our Money interviews. Talks. Exactly. Listen to our interviews with cast members of those two he directed at don'tgoother.com. Miner is actually the only person that has ever crossed over from the Friday the 13th films to the Halloween films as he's directed both Friday the 13th Part 2 and 3 and Halloween H2O as well. Cunningham always felt like that the MPAA held him to a higher standard after this film due to both its success and his belief that other producers would point to it as an example that they should be allowed to get away with more stuff too. And the last thing I have is a little bit of a rant. Gene Siskel hated this movie so much that he gave away the ending in his review because he's a dickhead. He, Roger Ebert also slammed it in a special edition of Siskel and Ebert called the war on women, which focused on misogynistic slasher movies. I've also been pretty vocal of my dislike of these two douchebags, but they also failed to notice that a lot of men are fucking killed in these movies, especially this one. And Survivor is a fucking woman in nearly every installment of this franchise. But, you know, regardless, all of this is just boosted ticket sales. Ha, so fuck them. Brother. So gave out, what's her name's phone number, right? You can't say Gene Siskel is a douchebag. He's deceased, man. Well, Okay, they're still douchebags whenever they were alive. So. <laughs> the Ultimate Warrior was a piece of shit. He's dead. Who gives a fuck? Speaking of the dead. Wow. Well, should have been dickheads when they were alive. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I'll try to clean it up a little bit. So this movie had a $550,000 budget, which is fucking pinto beans compared to most movies around that time. Uh, this made a cool whopping. million worldwide box office. So no fucking wonder we got 11 more of these shits because holy hell, that's a lot of money. That's good. That's good return on investment is what I'll say. Not bad. Not bad at all. I I, I thought it was interesting that Mike said that 550 grand is pinto beans and we know he's got the money on the show. Right, right. Now, 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 now in the movie making world, that is pinto beans. (laughs) By the way, 
if you include that money and the marketing money, it would have been today's equivalent of $4.9 million. You're welcome. It's true. But just a couple of years prior, Halloween was made for, what was it, like $300,000 or something like that. So it still had a bigger Man, budget. that's weird. And a significantly better film somehow. Anyway. Yeah, this movie is better. I agree. No, Absolutely no, not. no, the fuck it's not. <laughs> Interesting. I'm going to chop up a snake and deliver it to your front door, you son of a bitch. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Over the line. If it's a wild snake and you're defending yourself, okay. But you're you're chopping up a. No, I'm doing pet. an innocent one. I'm doing I'm doing someone's pet. He's doing I'm gonna leave it on your front door. You know say, this is little, and I'm gonna say this is little Sally's pet right here. That's fine. I'm gonna chop a snake too, a trouser snake. Yours. God damn it. <laughs> All right. That was fucking funny. This uh, movie couldn't hold the trouser snake of Halloween '78. Man, come on, hmm. get the fuck out of it here. Damn bro. sure it couldn't. There you go. Fuck. <laughs> you know. Jason Voorhees never drove. Jason Voorhees is a fucking dead kid in this movie. Fuck that shit. <laughs> All right, guys, let's jump into our favorite part of the review, our favorite kill, least favorite kill in the rating. Uh, does anybody in particular want to go first? I can set the bar extraordinarily high if you want. <laughs> go, go ahead, Dustin. All right. Uh, least favorite kill is no secret. That, that snake did not deserve it. Uh, you know, free, free Damien. I feel like Earthquake from 1990 WWF was out here killing snakes. Um, my favorite kill, you know, this is a tough one because, yes, Kevin Bacon's kill is iconic. Um, but that throat slash looked good. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm okay. I'm just going to go with Kevin Bacon's. I'm going to go with Kevin Bacon's a spear through the back just because of the, uh, the effects. And nope, swerve. I like the axe to the face. Top three, three-way tie for the lead. Anyway, so uh, there's a lot of good kills just based on the effects of Tom Savini. Um, but as yeah. far as my overall thoughts, like I said, I think that this movie is great. I think this movie, while yes, it has its flaws, and I don't feel like I was overly partial to this movie in my review of it, I think that you can't deny a legacy when you remove when you review a movie. So when you review the first of something and it spawns such a legacy that I hold such so near and dear to my heart, um, I think that this movie does a great job to establish that. Had this movie sucked, we wouldn't have got the others that that we all love, especially part eight. So as far as my rating goes, I'm going to go with a, okay, again, remember I said my ratings or rankings of the franchise that part six is my favorite. It was number one, but I think this one's slightly better. I gave that one an 8.5. I'm going to give this one an 8.75. Okay. All right. I'll go next to bring down the rating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my favorite kill, I chose Marcy. Uh, the acting <laughs> the acting was terrible, but the look of the axe in her face is incredible. Uh, worst kill, I chose Claudette in the beginning. Off screen, you don't see anything. Uh, I just wrote a little summary. I'm in the minority and having this as my least favorite Friday the 13th film in the franchise. While I do not think this movie is great or even good, it is the kickstart to one of my favorite horror franchises. My positives are it has a great feel, campiness, 80s cheese, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it embodies that 80s horror feel that fans love still to this day. Uh, great score from Manfredini and great effects from one of the special effects goats, Mr. Tom Savini, and I have one of his Jason Mass sign. That's awesome. However, I think most of the acting is pretty pretty abysmal. A lot of the kills don't make sense to how a 49-year-old woman could do this stuff. And sorry, but I think Alice is a terrible final girl. Uh, she's so frustrating at the end, but 
Even with all that, I give this movie a flat five. Not good, but still more watchable than a lot of other movies we've done, and I have to appreciate what this film did for the franchise and horror in general. I'll go ahead and go let Brian go last again. Okay, here we go. Sorry, Brian. Uh, <laughs> my uh, my favorite kill is actually going to be Marcy. And as much as I praise the Jack kill, I think that I just love that axe to the face. I think it looks really good. My least favorite kill is Claudette as well. Off screen, not a whole lot to it. Uh, so that's where I am with that. Um, and by the way, uh, Friday the 13th Part 8 sucks balls. I, I, I always have to counter Dustin before he just gets his shit in. I'm not going to let that shit stand. That movie's fucking wow. awful. Anyway, um, this movie, not awful. Um, I like a lot about this movie. I like the campiness. I love how it k- kickstarted an entire franchise within the horror genre. Um, it's not perfect. It has a lot of little mistakes. It's very bland when it comes to the actual story. But I think a lot of the kills look good. The effects are good. I love the killer reveal. Um, it is a classic in the, well, I kind of questioned his classic status at the beginning. I think just doing this review kind of cements it to me as a classic. So I'll go ahead and give it that, that moniker right there. Um, all in all, I think it's an enjoyable watch. It never fails to captivate me in some way. It may be something new I notice or whatever, but I'm not bored while watching it, even though it does drag in some parts. So all that being said, I gave this a flat seven. Hmm. Okay. Uh, actually, my least favorite kill, I did have the snake, but since D- I'll let Dustin have it, he seems very, very emotional about it. Um, Ned, I will go with Ned because I wanted to see his stupid ass die. Ooh, I, I like that. See that. Um, you know, in my uh, favorite kills, throat slash on Annie. I loved it. Um, in closing, you know, I- I'm in I'm in very strong like in a very non-committal relationship way for, for most of the series. Um, I, I love that my taste for this has changed over the past few decades. Uh, this entire franchise is undoubtedly a staple. Um, I mean, hell, I think Dead Meat said something obvious that I never even put together. But there's a Friday the 13th movie, eight of the 10 years of the 80s. I mean, Friday the 13th oh, wow. is 80s horror. It's weird that Nico hates the 80s, but uh, this yeah, movie... Yeah, weird that he likes this friend. That is crazy. <laughs> this movie started the summer camp slasher phase, but none can compare. Um, but, you know, take the t- take some advice. I want you to, if you're listening, try to, if you haven't saw, done it, take the time to watch some of the documentaries on this. They're very insightful because, I mean, there's so much we didn't and couldn't touch on here. Um, I, I love this cast counter to Mike. I love all the campers besides Ned, fuck him. But, and I'll say this and it'll probably date us down the road, but the Blu-ray transfer is beautiful. Even if it, you know, it's two HD in some scenes. Um, Oh, the last thing I'll say, go on and watch never hike alone after this movie, never Mm -hmm. hike alone actually makes this even better for me. Um, it goes back to this camp showing these crime scenes. I mean, we had Vincent DeSanti on the show, um, the writer and director of Never Hike Alone, and we mm-hmm. reviewed those two short movies of his. Go check them out now. Don't go out there.com. Uh, but as far as this movie goes, I'm going to rate this movie also a flat seven, and I will definitely change my rankings of this franchise. Okay. Well, that gives us a composite rating of 6.9375. Uh, IMDb has it at a 6.4 with only 135,526 votes. So I, people are that sleeping on it. Like, that, that actually does surprise me too for this movie to be so yeah 
polarizing one way or the other to only have 135,000 uh, votes. Anyway. I want to read uh, an iTunes review from a while back that, that stuck with me. It's pretty funny. It's uh, from Mark Yelton, 49. He broke, he gave us five stars. So I appreciate that. Well, Great yeah. show. But he says, I love the format where you discuss the movie scene by scene. It's why I love TGIF 13. My, <laughs> my only beef is a lack of respect for Friday the 13th. Nico, <laughs> you can't claim this be, to be your favorite series and then say one through three are crap. How dare you? <laughs> Otherwise, great show. I mean, he has a point. It's true. Five stars, though. Thanks for the five stars. If you haven't done that yet, go on your mama's phone, goes on your daddy's phone, rate us five stars. We're almost to 200. Appreciate that review, Mark. Uh, but uh, four and six are way better than one through three. But anywho, uh, any more final thoughts on Friday the 13th? All right. Uh, let's shout out our blood donors before we get out of here. Uh, just want to say again, really appreciate y'all take a big burden off of us and y'all help us out a, a whole lot. And we fully acknowledge how tough times are economically for everyone. So any financial contributions are greatly appreciated. Uh, our camper level reoccurring are Clayton J, Nina, Michelle Mirza, Andrew Ferguson, Carrie Adams, the horror movie crew podcast, Alex Seligson, Eric Doolittle and Sean Irwin. Our camp counselor reoccurring are Hunter Nelson, Dennis Kennedy, Edwin Hernandez Gunn, Joe Swinford, Jennifer Davis from the Too Close to Home podcast, Karen and Heather Smith. Uh, really appreciate all of y'all. Y'all, like I said, take a big, big burden off of us and helps us out a lot. Uh, any final thoughts on Friday the 13th before we get out of here? I'm glad we finally did the original. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. It's kind of weird. Time. It's <laughs> This is the only franchise where we've done like a bunch of sequels, but not the original <laughs> until just now. <laughs> All right. Uh, just want to say happy Friday the 13th, all of our fans, listeners. Absolutely. Whether you've been listening to us from the beginning or if this is your first episode, we really appreciate y'all. Like Brian just said, I think we have 193 uh, ratings on iTunes. Please go give us a rating. Write us a review if you're a fan. We really appreciate it. Uh, that just helps us reach new people. Uh, happy Friday the 13th. Y'all have a good one. Go buy a shirt on our website. Zeitgeist. Just want to remind everybody. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.